Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. China is nothing if not innovative when it comes to finding ways to exert control over their people. Beijing plans to launch its social credit system nationwide by 2020 to rate the trustworthiness of 1.3 billion people by assigning each individual a score. We'll be able to establish a blacklist of people and create a system of punishments that will be based on a scientific theory. These punishments will serve as a whip to rebuild moral values. Our society. Needs it. One of the things that is the creepiest about the Chinese social credit scoring model is that it also cares about the credit scores of people who are friends with you. If you do something that is considered not okay by the party, then your friends' scores can be affected. So this isolates people socially and culturally if they disagree with policies. That's something that I think everyone should be afraid of. In this episode, we discuss social control mechanisms in China. Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Here to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news in a region that's rapidly changing the world. During China's Cultural Revolution, which began in 1966 and lasted a decade, the communist regime, led by Mao Zedong, publicly humiliated, imprisoned, or otherwise got rid of anyone deemed to have ideas different from those espoused by the party. The persecution even extended to party line adherents, who had the misfortune of having relatives who questioned the regime, resulting in enormous numbers of ordinary people officially losing their. Standing in society, in China, the idea that you need strong authority to ensure stability is not new, and the Communist Party has a long record of practicing different forms of social control. There's the Dunway or work unit, which wasn't just a place of employment, but the source of housing, schools, and healthcare, and intimately linked to the Communist Party infrastructure. Or the Hukou system of household registration, set up to restrict where people could live. Now China is making another giant step in monitoring its people. Four years ago, the government announced its goal to create a social credit system to go online by 2020. Officially, it's a way of fighting crime and terrorism, with the system eventually able to track the behaviour of every one of China's 1.4 billion citizens. Rewarding behaviour deemed good and punishing behaviour deemed otherwise, it will likely exploit cutting-edge developments in facial recognition technologies, DNA matching, and artificial intelligence. And when it's fully in place, will be the largest and possibly most sophisticated social control system in the world. But what does constant surveillance mean for the ordinary Chinese citizen? What's the risk-reward equation, and which parts of China's massive population are most likely to be under the official microscope? And what does the determined tracking of its own people mean for the future generation of knowledge and new ideas for China? To examine China's social control mechanisms, past, present, and future, we're joined by Asia Institute China watchers and political scientists, Dr. Fengshui Wu and Dr. Delia Lin. Fengshui and Delia, welcome to Ear to Asia. Hi, Ali. Thank you. What exactly is a social credit system, Fengshui? It is a comprehensive 
database that the government set up across different sectors to monitor individual behaviors from different sources so that eventually you have a final score, that is your social score. And um, there are different kinds of perks and punishments or potential consequences connected to it. Here we are more familiar with, you know, you go to bank, apply for a credit card, so you have a financial credit score. So this is a score to give you a sort of assessment of your social behavior. Indeed, if you look at the word credit in Chinese, uh, Delia, it actually goes back to traditional Confucius ethics. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So xin, which is one of the characters or words used in social credit system, it means credibility, trustworthiness. So it is a moral thing. It's not just your financial credit, whether you've paid all your loans. It's really about other areas as well. And how broad are those other areas? Function, I mean, is it as simple as jaywalking? You might lose a point. Uh, Helping an elderly person, you might gain a point. The scope is still under experimentation, I think. It also depends on the locality. So different uh, local governments is experimenting with different kinds of data. You probably are aware of these examples. In some places, jaywalking is important. So they're using this digital imaging surveillance technology to instantly capture, have you violated traffic rules? And you would lose these points instantly. Some other localities, they focus more on your internet purchasing behavior. So they would get the data from these popular platforms for people to buy things on the internet. And then I was given some examples, such as if you're a middle-aged married woman, you're buying a lot of things for elderly, for children, you're considered very caring, so you gain some points. And other places, some local governments might pay more attention to whether you've paid your loans, have you ever had a job with the government? That would give a big bonus because you're good citizens, that's why you were trusted and to give a public affair sort of job. So there's still a couple of years before it's expected to be completely and fully in place. But at the same time, it would seem, Delia, that it's not quantitative, that it's actually going to be a subjective analysis of someone's behaviour. The idea of building up this system is to try to make it quantitative. But the thing is, as Feng Shui just mentioned, that different localities may look at different parts of the behaviour. Because some behaviour are more important to some localities and less important to others. For example, in Xinjiang, uh, they will be looking at how many times you pray a day, and that would be part of your credibility. Of course, who makes those criteria? That's absolutely not decided by one person, but that's quite subjective, depending on what the local government sees the important behaviours that would be considered as a good citizen in that particular situation. And it's not just limited to the individual. There have been a lot of media reports in China just recently about a child who was given a place in university but lost it because of his parents' social credit standing. Yeah, exactly. Because what this system is all about is about reward those who deemed to be credible by this system and punish those who deemed to be not credible by this system. Then how far does punishment go? 
And that's quite subjective. Yeah, the implications that, to people beyond just that particular individual, but to the people related to you. Yeah, so that's called collective punishment, punishment. which is not new to Chinese governance because that was invented in Qin Dynasty between 2021 and 2007 BC. Uh, so that kind of collective punishment uh, was used at that time and also was used later on. So which means that when you are deemed to be a criminal, especially a political criminal, or not credible, not just you are uh, punished, but also people who are related to you. So that's why we've seen media reports on successful candidates being rejected to the university because the father uh, was deemed incredible because the father didn't pay some of the loans. Feng Shou, what are, what are the uh, broader implications of this collective punishment, if you like, which in many ways would appear to rely on reporting on each other, in essence? This is the part of the credit system that worries a lot of China watchers or, or China experts is because um, somehow it does ring a bell of our understanding of the social damage and the lingering social damage of the cultural evolutions that uh, essentially pulls out the dark side of humanity. It's not just a technology-based civilians or specialized governmental civilians of its citizen is to mobilize every single person, turn themselves into an agent of civilians and uh, breaking down social trust to the fundamental degree, breaking families and uh, encouraging children to report on parents and so on and so forth. So this is something that uh, worries many of us. Delia, the picture that Feng Shui paints there is, is a really quite dramatic one. Do you think that this will go that far, that it will become an active encouraging of people to report on each other? It's not that it will go that far. It has gone that far already because it's this kind of reporting culture is already happening in China quite a lot. And even some university vice chancellors are calling the students not to do that, which shows that it's happening right now. And this is facilitated by technology as well, because it's so easy to record conversations and so easy to keep a record of what people are doing. And when governments are encouraging connecting um, data for everybody, collecting behaviours of every single person in everyday life, that it encourages this kind of culture to grow. Function. what about uh, those that, that welcome this in the context of the lack of trust in China, the extent of corruption, which has been such a very big official focus, and the hope that maybe something like this social credit system will make people more honest, will make life more fair? Yes, there are such arguments, and some of them might have a point, but I think these arguments are sort of made mostly based on more economic theories, that given the fact that China has just started or haven't completed a solid, reliable financial credit system in a sense that uh, the economy has grown so big so fast. However, we still lack of reliable data and information of individuals' credit history or economic or financial credibility. One argument I've recently been informed is that in China, the first uh, internet-based platform for P2P microfinancing company was up, running, and made a lot of revenue in 2009. But it took nine years for the government to finally come up with some sort of regulation of internet-based microfinancing. This side of the argument is 
that the market needs a bit of regulation, needs real investment in establishing reliable system, you know, for the whole 1.4 billion people. You know, there's less chance to become a victim of these sort of e-commerce crime and all these things. But I find that these are strictly more sort of from the economic side. So when you look at a risk versus benefit equation of this system, you see more the risk than the benefit? I think the risk side really needs more open discussion. I think, you know, the economic side has been more discussed and the government is more willing to share, uh, you know, information about it. But the social side becomes so sensitive. I would rather see myself to be run in 10 years. But for me to be run is that at least the government has to be a little bit more open and let people to reflect on it. Maybe if we are aware of the consequences, the risks um, then we don't do it in a way similar to culture evolution. Let's maybe let's restrict these kind of reporting and credit buildings within the financial arena. But there's no discussion so far. And Delia, how do you see it? I mean, you were a child during the cultural revolution, but you obviously very, very well aware of what happened in that time. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for a number of reasons that in China, this kind of open debate to be carried out around this idea of social credit system. And that's also why we don't really see a lot of resistance from China. I'm sure that the people are discussing privately, but we don't see a lot of discussions. A number of reasons, because the rationale behind this massive social credit system is, first of all, the Chinese government, from their perspective, they find it's difficult to enforce laws and regulations. So the court can say to uh, some of the people who borrow money from the bank to repay the loan, and they probably just ignore it. And um, after a few notices, they still ignore it. So there were many ways of resolving this problem, but the government intends to resolve it in a very harsh way. And also the second uh, consideration of the government is how they rationalise this whole social credit system is that they believe, as we've just discussed, credit in China is not just about how trustworthy you are as a person who borrow money from the bank, but also it's about your moral standard as well. So the government sees itself always as an agent that should build up or construct morality in society. They always assume that role. So that is the, the official justification for this system? Yeah. That's official justification for the system. So they believe that building a social credit system will help the government construct general morality in the society without considering that this system has other social impact will encourage people to report on each other and also surveillance as well on people's private lives. That is not considered by the government and also people are not very sensitive to violation of privacy um, because there were about 200 million CCTV cameras in China and um, 400 million are to be built by 2020. But we don't really hear a lot of resistance from within China. And is there is there a difference, do you think, function between the official justification and the primary purpose? After 2012, I do think the so-called uh, social control and civilians become much more tied together. I would say certain tactics were already there even before 2012 yeah. or, you know, all the time, as we said, this is a history of 
social control. It's an important component of CCP's rule. And maybe, you know, the technology improved, the hardware side has, you know, been enhanced. What I discover is that um, the ideology is coming back big time. And uh, now, in a sense, all these civilians and control has been given more meaning. This is what I think the current administration has been trying very hard is really sort of bring back these moral arguments. I used to always argue in my writings is that harsh punishment of dissidents and extreme cases of punishing individuals have always been. But suddenly I felt this it's much more coherent because there's a coherent narrative now Mm. that the CCP is not just, you know, a decorative rhetoric. It's the champion of modernity, is a champion of socialist values, is coming back to feel the so-called moral vacuums that many scholars have discussed. The moment China started to become open and reform, there's a moral vacuum. People all become so consumed by economic gain. So this time, everything is becoming a bit more coherent because this big ideology now is being reignited. I completely agree with that because I write on ideology mm. and rule of law. And so, I, th- so I this is used... the the party basically putting its arms massively around absolutely. society oh, and being that. involved yeah. in every part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And to be in control in every area of everyday life. And also set boundaries around not just your behavior, where you can move. And in your introduction, you did mention Danwei and Hukou and household registration. And those helped the government to place people within geographical boundaries. But government also now looking at put people within spiritual boundaries and moral boundaries and so that people all behave within that boundaries. And if you do that, uh, then you may flourish as a human being economically. But if you uh, transgress any boundaries, then uh, something uh, dramatic might happen to you. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm with political scientists Dr Delia Lin and Dr Fengshui Wu. We're talking about how China keeps track of its own citizens and how that surveillance may shape Chinese society in the coming years. You've both referred to the risks here of becoming a society where uh, people are reporting on each other. But what about the other risk that if you're not quite sure whether you're being monitored, you're uncertain and that uncertainty is likely to make people more obedient, uh, self-censorship? How big an issue is that? I think that's a valid projection in a sense. All these um, social psychological phenomena are connected as we know from different country experiences. Eventually, it doesn't matter whether there's actually a score. But if everybody believed there's a score, then we would act according to it. This is Eastern Europe before the collapse of Berlin Wars. Everybody knew there's a docile about themselves. So you imagine what would go into your dosa, the secret profile for you. So you behave according to it. There's these very metaphorical sort of stories of, you know, grossers. You always put party ideology slogans in front of your vegetables so that you can prove you're a very good citizen. Even though you probably, truly, privately don't believe it, but you believe somebody somewhere is watching you and there is a dosa, there's a 
file about you, then you really start to put up these uh, facade of behaviour. If self-censorship is one issue, the other is, of course, actual censorship. And if we're talking about social control, it's not just uh, this new credit system. There is, of course, the Great Firewall of China and indeed social media. I mean, WeChat, Weibo, those sorts of social media outlets, they're censored too, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And my acquaintance in China are saying that because so many people are setting up establishing WeChat groups and every five WeChat groups will be watched by one person from the government. So That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Basically, there's no secret. Anything you write on WeChat, you write to your friends, write to your relatives, or write to your acquaintances, everything will be censored. Everything is being watched. There's absolutely no secret. So it's not just about self-censorship. And also not only that individuals are censored, uh, but also what we just talked about is collective impoverishment. My acquaintance told me that the WeChat group leader, so there's always a WeChat group leader. Here in Australia, for example, if we set up a Facebook page that is public, we don't really know who set it up. It doesn't really matter. Whereas in China, this WeChat group leader is visible, is very important important figure because if anything happens within that WeChat group that you set up, this individual, this group leader who set up this WeChat group would be affected, would be punished. So then it's not just about censorship, it's also about mutual censorship as well. So people are watching each other, like Feng Shui just mentioned that everybody becomes an agent of surveillance and that's that's very dangerous. It was almost become part of normal life. It's how we behave every day. What happens to people whose posts are deemed unacceptable? We don't have a systemic database on these cases. All we are reading are from some media sources and there are different cases. The case can go as extreme as you cited is your children's high school education or undergrad education will be affected. Some other cases as if you are deemed as a good citizen with high scores, you might get a free visa from certain countries. So even a post, a social media comment, can not just be deleted, but can also lead to further ramifications. Yes, yes. We also have these cases that to people, people get invited to see public security personnel because what they said in social media. What about monitoring outside of China, particularly, and this is one subject that in countries like Australia has been quite controversial, but monitoring of students outside China. Do we have any real sense of the extent to which that is done? Monitoring citizens abroad or beyond borders certainly is much more difficult because you have to comply with local laws. I would say that this wasn't as obvious. It probably wasn't possible a decade ago. And what happens is that increasingly the government is funding people to go abroad. So we have increasing percentage of Chinese nationals going abroad with complete government funding. And also, without discontinuing their official affiliations, or there are more people traveling because of official duties and missions. I mean, in Australia, you have to fill a lot of travel diaries if you are traveling for so-called official business, and you do have to comply with institutional rules. So particularly, I think this argument, this point, observation that the government is paying more attention to those who travel abroad with these people are actually officials back home, that they are paying more attention in terms of what you say, what you do. Originally, they only monitor, you know, if you do gambling, you know, if you're, you're actually officials, or, you know, CCP party officials, something, you go abroad and you gamble. That's 
always considered a very bad behavior. But I think the government is paying more attention to that. And you now have the United Front Work Department. Yeah, United Front Department has always been there. Is it more active or are we just more more aware of it? It's definitely more active. It's not just about monitoring, but also about building relationships, about uh, making people aware that whatever they do may have some adverse effect on people within China. So they are really making use of those relationships that you have. And with uh, technology, when they can build a large database of basically all your relationships and what you say and all the the things that you say and all the things you do, it's much easier to actually find the weak points of human beings and much easier to control and monitor them. They don't even need to use the suppressive measures, uh, they can just make you aware that we know everything about you. Uh, that in itself is always hang back on your mind and you always have to watch what you say because you don't want to affect other people. Which brings me to my final question. When you have a, a system like this that has the potential to be so pervasive, what's the potential human cost? What's the potential cost to society? Arguably, there is a positive, but you've raised a lot of other questions. Yeah, I think this is a recurring theme today is that it's very clear the state is ambitious. The state wants to achieve a lot of things. One thing I've noticed, the state wants to reclaim its moral high ground, wants to be champion of modernity and morality in today's China. And to reach that goal, I think they want to see effects very quickly And they want to see citizens not just paying lip service. So they've decided to reactivate or bring back a lot of old methods. And the risks to society of that? Is to the shrinking of discursive space, is to think it's only good that we have a unified system of values, that anyone who thinks differently is not right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because um, what it does is when you have a whole system that's quantified, so everybody everybody's behavior is quantified and in, at the end of the day you get a score. Uh, so every single behavior, every word you say has a consequence. What it does is really to justify differentiation, differentiated treatment through this whole system. So that means that citizens can be classified, can be differentiated in certain ways. I mean, social control is nothing new to China, but what is the pervasiveness and the massiveness that it's happening now? The risk is that it creates a totally different mindset in the entire society and also justify formalized and institutionalized differentiations. Dr. Delia Lin and Dr. Feng Shui Wu, I would love to revisit this topic in, uh, in a little while when we know even more about this social credit system. But thank you so much for your insights and for talking to Eto Asia. Pleasure. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 18th of July, 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com and audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.